First John chapter 3 will be the location of this morning's sermon text, and you may want to open your Bibles there. Not the Gospel of John, but First John, way back by the maps, and it will be on the screen, but I'll be referring particularly to three verses that sort of give us our direction and our focus for this morning as we think about loving words and loving deeds and making the gospel come alive. First John chapter 3, verses 16 and following through the end of the chapter. First John three sixteen and following. And before um, I read the scripture, I'd like for us to take a few moments and just be in God's presence and bow our heads together as we wait in his presence and listen and then pray together as a family. Our loving and gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, thank you for your love that is so rich and so deep. We pray that today you would help us to live deeply into you and into your goodness. We pray that today you would hear us as we pray and as we make our requests. We think on this earth day about how good you are to create such a beautiful world. You have filled the earth with your goodness and beauty. And uh, we pray that we will always rejoice in your creation, that we'll be good stewards to care for all that you've given to us, that we will serve you with gladness and with hearts willing to share. We do pray today for those in our congregation who are ill, those who are uh, doing faithful watch beside loved ones who are sick, those who are grieving, those who are dealing with marriage and family crises and financial hardship, and those who have lost their way spiritually and are seeking to find your path again. We pray your mercy and your grace upon all who are hurting. We lift up to you our women and men in the armed forces. We pray their safety and your rich blessings upon all their family And we ask that you might work in our nation and our world for ways of peace, ways of justice, and that you would give us hearts to see how much you love all the world, not just us. And Lord, to that end, we acknowledge this morning that we never graduate from the school of love, from the school of relationships. We're always learning, we're always stumbling. We're always having to start again. We thank you for your patience. We ask you for your empowering. We ask for understanding as we hear some important Bible verses and instruction about relationships and about love. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Invite you to stand if you're able as I share God's word. As I read aloud, I invite you to follow along silently and prayerfully. 1 John 3:16 and following. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need? and yet refuses to help. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are 
from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. All who obey His commandments abide in Him, and He abides in them. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit that He has given to us. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, you have no doubt had this experience or something similar. Your child runs inside the house from playing outdoors and says, Mommy, brother is calling names again. Mother says, Oh, what did he say? And the child says, That idiot called me stupid. (laughs) Something like that, right? Loving is not easy sometimes. We'll grant that, right? Loving is not easy sometimes. And whenever I read a fascinating Bible passage like 1 John 3.16 and following, I always want to ask, why is this in here? What, what made this be included and other things not make, it, not make the cut in uh, our authorized, inspired scripture? And of course... Some of the answer comes from the fact that we know that 1 John was written pretty late in the first Christian century and that there was something happening in the church. Some of the original fire for the risen Christ had begun to flame out. Some of the original zeal that the early disciples had for one another and for the Lord had begun to fade Real life had set in. Jesus had not returned for his second coming yet. People were getting discouraged. And the early church started bickering with one another and started finding fault with one another. And the early church started turning in on itself and taking care of her own needs and neglecting the needs of those on the outside. And so John wrote these words because he knew Uh, There needed to be sort of a firing up and a a rekindling and a remembering of some basics about love. This would be a good place to remember that uh, often quoted passage from one of uh, uh, Eugene Peterson's books when he says, if you are joining the church because you want to hang out with a bunch of harmonious people who have their act together, you're going to be disappointed (laughs) He says, not only will you be disappointed if you think joining the church means that you're going to hang out with people who have their act together and are always harmonious, it also shows you haven't read much of the Bible. (laughs) Because the Bible, much of the Bible we have, grows out of the fact that people are people, tensions and conflicts are real, and relationships are tough. And a lot of what's written, including this morning's text, written precisely because people struggle with the instruction to love one another. And so it's, it's real basic. Uh, it's what I love about John's letter. Um, 
In verse 16, we see love's example. We know love by this, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to love one another. It's basic example. If you want to know what love is like, look to Jesus Christ. If you want to know what love is like, look to the cross. Enter into the mystery of the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ laid down his life. That's what love is. That's love's example. That's love's empowering. Now, a lot of mistakes are made with the concept of love in our culture today. In fact, I, could, I think it's an overgeneralization, but it, but it sort of helps us think about it. Culture has botched up love in one way, and church has botched up the notion of love in another. Culture has botched up the notion of love by equating love with an emotion. Love is a feeling. Falling in love. Feeling love. Well, I don't love that person anymore, so I I don't want to be married. Or I, I don't feel like serving God this week or month or year or decade. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like forgiving that person. Well, whoever said the Christian life is based on emotion? And yet that's the message from the world. But the mistake that the church makes, it takes the notion of love and moves it out of experience and moves it into the head. As if love is believing correct doctrine. I believe in the Bible doctrine of God loving everybody, and that's enough no matter how I treat the person next to me. We intellectualize love as if it's a mental exercise to simply say, I believe that I should love everyone. I believe that love is best, but of course, I always have these exceptions. So culture makes a mistake in missing the concept of love, and so does church, because ultimately love is experiential. That is to say, it grows out of an experience and relationship with Jesus Christ as we enter into the mystery of the cross and what Jesus Christ did for us, and we take on his nature as we begin to follow him, and we begin to love the way he loves. Biblical love is about giving not an emotion, not an intellectual thought, but it's about giving. And and love, have you noticed this? Truly loving is very inconvenient. Just ask the mother of three small children. Does she love her children? Yes. Is it pretty inconvenient and messy sometimes? Yes. That's the way all love relationships are. Messy, inconvenient. And love is expensive. It's costly. Just as Jesus laid down all of his rights, all of his privileges, all the authority that he could have asserted and was treated like a slave and a criminal and nailed to a cross, so love is expensive for us because we give up the right to have the last word. We give up the right to hold a grudge. We give up the right to hate. We give up the right to feel sorry for ourselves about how poorly we've been treated. We give up the right to to stay in control of every situation and always have the, the last final argument to win. There are a lot of ways that love is costly. And John says, Jesus' death on the cross is love's definition. It's love's example. It's about giving. 
verse 17, he says the second thing that he shows us love's test. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need yet refuses to help? Love's test. And I don't know how your Bible translates that last phrase. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? But literally the New Testament language is sees a brother or sister in need and closes the door of your heart. How can we see people in need and close the door of our hearts? See, the key is seeing. The verb sees, S-E-E-S. Because we just don't see. We don't see people around us. We don't see people in need because we've trained our eyes and our hearts not to see. You know, when I go to the eye doctor, he always does this thing to check my peripheral vision. You know, tell me when you see the pen. Well, I know it's coming. Tell me when you see the pen on this side. Always checking my peripheral vision. How's our church's peripheral vision? Seeing people on the sides, on the margins. I know we see really well the people whom it's easy to love. But how's our peripheral vision as a congregation? At Wednesday night suppers, on a Sunday morning we make a beeline for the people we've known 50 years. How's our peripheral vision in the community where we live or parts of Jefferson City where we don't live? How's your peripheral vision? What don't you see? Who don't you see? A missiologist by the name of Andrew Walls has said that biblical faith has a bias for the periphery. Biblical faith has a bias toward the periphery, a bias toward those who've been pushed to the margins and pushed to the sides and no one sees. Now, I'm I'm preaching confessionally here because I'm acknowledging to you that this is a struggle in my own life and and I I, I I I think I've been captivated by my culture more than the gospel, in that so many churches in the West, the Western Hemisphere, particularly the USA, so many of our churches, me included, have built our congregational structures in a way that props up mostly white, middle-class vision of community. But not everybody in the world is mostly white, middle class. What about the people on the periphery? That's what John's talking about. What about the people who don't fit our demographic? What about the people on the margins? I had a disabled person tell me one time, he said, you know, it's just amazing how if you have a disability, you're invisible in a crowd. 
People blow by you. People look above you. People almost knock you down. That there's something that happens that the healthy human being simply screens out that which does not fit in a particular viewfinder. We could say that about any kind of group that is pushed to the margins. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and shuts the door of the heart? To be in need means there's a hole in your life. Might be a physical need. Might be a need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It might be a need for food or shelter. Might be a need to be listened to and to be valued as a human being created by God. This is love's test, John says in verse 17. Well, in verse 18, he goes a step further. We've looked at love's example and love's test. And then in verse 18, he talks about love's concreteness. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Verse 18, 1 John 3. This is love's concreteness, that love is not an abstract concept. It's not a vague notion that floats in the stratosphere. Love is very concrete and real. John says it's not about talk. It's about deeds. It's about action. And I did not know till I prepared for this week's sermon that the Greek word for action in verse 18 is the simple word work. We are to love one another through truth and work. Moving out of our comfort zones, doing things that cause us to get up and to be different or to to exert energy, to love through work. Now, question, where and when did we ever get the idea that the only requirement to follow Jesus was to be doctrinally sound? Where in the New Testament does it say that the only requirement to be known as a Christian is to believe a correct doctrine about virgin birth, and about the saving grace of Jesus. No, it's experiential, remember? It's experience. Where we take Jesus Christ into our lives personally. We make a commitment to follow Jesus. It's an experience that leads us to show that love by work. Verse 23 that I read earlier today. This is the commandment. Two things. That we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the part we usually get right. And love one another. And there is no place in the Bible that lets us off the hook that we only get to choose one of those. To believe on Jesus Christ and to love one another. And so here's what church is all about. You want it in a nutshell? To lead people to experience Jesus Christ and to train people people in how to love. That's why we're here. To lead people to Jesus Christ and to train people to be loving in all relationships. In all relationships. To think about 
loving not just in a word, but in action. Remember, I announced in January that all 2018, all year long, the sermon, overarching sermon and worship theme will be, come see what love can do. And remember what we're doing next Sunday. We're not meeting here for worship in Bible study. We're worshiping through work. We're loving this community by working, by not just talking and singing about it, but by showing love through work. But here's the sad thing. The sad thing is that that's news. The sad thing is that that's out of the ordinary, that that is remarkable when it ought to be standard procedure. What would happen if this place became known as the place where there's always mercy and there's always love? In every encounter, in every conversation, in every deed. What if First Baptist could become that place? And what if you became known by others as the most loving, merciful person that anyone's ever met? Wouldn't that be a blessing? If you became known more than anything else, you know, if at, if at, if at our funerals, instead of people talk, talking about how many committees we served on or whether we were uh, lettering in sports in high school or what college we went to, that if all people could talk about was how well we loved, what a blessing that would be. There is a tradition that cannot be verified historically that toward the end of John the Elder's life in that late first century church, as the John the Elder was about ready to die in Ephesus, that they carried him in on a cot on his deathbed and set him before the ecclesia, the congregation, gathered there. And in a whisper, the only voice he could muster, he simply raised his head and said, Brethren, love one another. That was his only message. It's really all there is to say, isn't it? It's everything. It's everything. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we love you. We open our hearts now to all the fresh work you want to accomplish. Through Christ we pray. Amen.